this passage uh, is a conclusion of chapter 9. We move on to 10, the exciting stuff. But uh, here we have uh, this conversation between Jesus and uh, the blind man and Jesus and the Pharisees. It goes like this. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see me, say, who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and the excitement that it is. And of all the things going on and around that uh, matter little, uh, your word is so very precious. And pray, Lord, that in our struggles and uh, difficult times, um, in our worries and our fears, Father, in our confusion and the things that tug at our heart, that you would be continually true through your word to uh, pull us on, encourage us, to strengthen us, and speak to us as you desire, that your word would have its full impact in our lives. We thank you for this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. This is a passage that we read from that is one highly charged, uh, both with the response of the uh, blind man as well as that of the uh, Pharisees who come later. And it's an interesting passage because it has some uh, summary dynamic in it. I say summary dynamic because, you see, it uses the phrase son of man. um, And it has great implications to it with regard to how we as a people are to respond to that son of man. Um, There's one. Second thing is that it seems also to have that uh, dynamic of Jesus having forgiven sins to an individual who is unworthy. And these religious people uh, are in great objection to that. How can you ever say that you can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins was the conversation that they had had with him in Capernaum. And now he's doing it in Jerusalem. This is an outrage and something they cannot tolerate. It doesn't matter what God's word says and what the truth is. It's what their teaching was that impacted them. And it it went so far as then to lead them to do things such as we've read in the previous part of the chapter, trying to manipulate witnesses, intimidate them, threaten to kick them out of the temple to get what they want because their religion says it has to be this way. And that's what they've done. And as you see, as the, the months move forward and we come to the cross... In the trial of Jesus, it's these same Pharisees who will intimidate the crowd to yell and shout and clamor for the release of Barabbas rather than Jesus Christ uh, from Pilate. It's the same tactic that went on then. It's the same tactic that goes on today in the church where people seek to intimidate rather than to expose others to what the Word of God is. And uh, it's unfortunate, but it's one that's it's just practiced, um, one that we need to stay away from. As people, we are not uh, intimidated, one, and we are not swayed by our traditions. We are impacted by what God's Word says and our need to return to it, to obedience and to the love of His grace, and, um, th- and that's where we're at. Anything else is phony. We don't want that. 
And so let's look at this passage um, because it's the end of chapter 9. It's kind of a summary here. And it has much to tell us with regard to uh, how um, this idea of the Son of Man plays into uh, John's thinking because he has uh, a lot to, to do with that. Okay, so one. The meaning of the Son of Man is revealed to us, right? Many of you know what it is, but um, it's given here again. But before we get to that, recognize that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost, right? And what is lost? This man that is blind, this fellow who cannot provide for himself, this weak, frail outcast of society. Do you know what it was like to be blind in Israel? If you will take time to look through the Old Testament at all the passages that deal with blindness... If you've got one of those fancy computers, you can look up, just type in blind Old Testament, pops them up. There's about uh, 25, 27 verses in there. And you read through those, and you realize to be blind is not a good thing in Israel. Um, It's not a good thing anywhere, you know. But in the United States in the 20th century, they give you a parking space. They would not do that in Israel uh, to that time, right? The compassion of the Son of Man, however, is such that it is levied on this fellow. We read that in verse 35, where it says, Jesus heard that they had put him out, and, and finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He does what he, he did then what he does for you now in calling you to come to Christ, right? It is one where his compassion reaches out to you in your need, and brings you into the fold. It is the love of God, the grace of God. It's unfolded. It's modeled right here in what, how we likewise also are to behave towards other people, how we're to, to reach out to other people. A couple of weeks ago, we had the Walter Hoving Home Singers here, right? We, we fed them. We financially uh, um, support their ministry every month as much as we can at this part, time in our budget. We uh, gave them clothes. Uh, we listened to them. Good model for ministry, right? Uh, first, care for the body, and then offer the same for the soul. First, he healed this blind man, and then he brought him to Christ, right? First, he met his physical needs, and then he offered him his, what was his spiritual need, and he, he met that need. And so it's a good, a good ministry for us. I know Mary Ann's involved in what is the plural ministry. Plural ministry, the, the outreach to those who are involved in what essentially is sort of a social addiction to uh, music and drugs and, all, and boys and girls and uh, very horrible uh, culture, that is, uh, uh, and one that is seeking to, to meet the needs of those people. Sometimes it's just listening. And uh, good ministry there. But it fits that category. First listen and then care. First care for the body and then offer the same for the soul. A good way to put it. That's what Jesus did. And uh, so good observation I think we can make on that. Um, And then the second thing as we move through that is that we look at this idea of what is being uh, talked about here uh, and what is spoken of in three categories in the New Testament, in the Gospels about Jesus Christ and the use of this title called Son of Man. Uh, a lot of people confuse themselves on it, get, get backtracked in it, and think that it's nothing more than just uh, a description of Jesus being a servant for us, and, and that's it. Okay? They say, well, that's all it means. That's not true. It's a lot more than that, a lot deeper than that, a lot wider than that. I want to share that with you because it's appropriate. Because when he comes to this blind man and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? The blind man says, show me. There's an understanding in that blind man that goes beyond his 
status in the society that is much higher. And so we want to catch up with where he's at and what he understands. A um, couple of things here. In verse 35, however, it reads, Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? If you read the same verse in the King James, uh, it reads, do you believe in the son of God? Can't be both. Which is it? Well, if you go through um, the uh, study, not just a scriptural study, but analysis of which is the older manuscript, the older piece of a parchment that it came from that is closer to the original autograph writing of the scripture, you'll find that the top one is the New American Standard. But the, the, more, the older version and the one that seems to have been changed is the bottom one, Son of God. Why is that? Um, my speculation is that Son of God may have meant something more pertinent to the individual who was, who was copying it and uh, for, for making, and making another copy of the scripture. Um, it may have been uh, limited in his understanding of the power of the phrase son of man as what it was um, and a couple other reasons in there, but don't know. But I do know this. The accurate reading is son of man. It is such an accurate reading that, that if you look in your Bible, typically they'll put a little footnote there and it says early manuscripts say... Not here. It's a slam dunk. That is what it said. And so moving on then with that understanding that the correct version of the top one, it reads for Son of Man, and that's what he comes to ask this, uh, this man. Uh, um, there are, understand that there are three major uses for the Son of Man in the New Testament. And, and what it is, it is basically a messianic title. Now, we know that he could just call himself, the, in the Greek, the Christ, or he could just call himself the Messiah. And you have to ask, well, why didn't he just say, if it's a messianic title, the Messiah? Do you believe in the Messiah? Oh, yes, I do. Show me. Because the Messiah is one who was sent by God. The Messiah is the one who has come to redeem Israel. And, there was, and, and it could be uh, understood also, the Messiah is the one come to lay down his life. And, and that would be enough, right? The problem is that, that these Jews... That one, that one, all through his society, understood that the word Messiah meant also these other things that were not biblical. He would come as the warrior to defeat those infidel Romans. No, that would be, that would be Muslim way to say it. Um, they, he would come as a warrior to feat, defeat those Gentile Romans. That's what a Jew would say. And so um, that's the idea of adding on things to the concept of, mess, of Messiah that Jesus is getting away from and using the title Son of Man to define who he is. Got that? So by using the, the, the title Son of Man, Jesus defines who he is. Back up. The f- title Son of God is used about 27 times in the New, New Testament. All in the, uh, well, it, it, no, talking about just in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's used 27 times. Jesus uses it of himself about, I think it's about four times, and that's it. The phrase, the title, Son of Man, as opposed to Son of God, and they both essentially mean the same thing, deity, and so there's no getting away from that. That's not the issue. It's just that one specifically refers to Messiah. Son of Man, you see, is used 80 times in the New Testament Gospels, and of those 80 times, 84 times in the whole New Testament, four times outside the Gospels, uh, 80 times in the New Testament, something like 78 or 79, I forget what it is, um, 
Jesus was referring to himself. Almost 80 times Jesus refers to himself in the title, Son of Man. And when he does, he defines himself and who he is. And that's where I want to go with three major categories of who this Messiah is. One is that the Son of Man came. He has a past. One way to think about it is the Son of Man is past, he's present, and he's future. That's what that messianic title is. And in the past, he came from glory. Okay? A couple of examples here. Well, again... We see that uh, phrase, son of man, when he talks to man. Um, understand that the first time this was used, it was back in Ezekiel, or one of the common ways. Ezekiel uses it 40 plus times to speak about himself. So it's a common prof- prophetic type of term of one delivering God's word, um, no doubt there. But the, the, the idea of the son of man uh, has a rich history to it in terms of what Jesus is now giving. One, that the Son of Man uh, in divine authority was humbled to complete the present assignment. Doesn't one with it. Guess I, I fooled with it and I rewrote it and I rewrote it. And it's long. I know that. But it means that he came from glory and he, he is divine. And we get mixed up with these tenses. He was, he is. For, for God, it's all present. It's not past. But in our, our sense, it's past. He came from glory. And he is still glorious. And he is completing the task. That's how he uses the, the phrase Son of Man. In 820, he says, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And what is he referring to? He's referring to his eternity past where he lived, his riches, his kingdom. But now in this present life, you see the animals, well, they have somewhere to sleep but not the Son of Man. His is in eternity. That's where his kingdom is at. But presently he has work to do. That's what that passage means. That's what it's referring to. Um, moving on from that, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I'll just read you 5 through 8, referring to the same concept. He came from glory. Presently he is doing the work that he has to. A fox with no, uh, not a, has a hole to sleep in, but not the Son of Man. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, right? So we see he came from glory, and he's presently completing the task. He had authority to forgive sins. Another aspect of being divine, right? In 9, 6 of Matthew, it says uh, there at Capernaum, uh, after he uh, um, healed the paralytic, it says, but so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. In other words, the authority to forgive sins now resides in Capernaum. That is heresy. It's not when it's the divine who is granting that, right? And so the, the phrase son of man is connected with being the divine. Okay, so we're defining who this Messiah is much more than the, the word Messiah. Um, and then one more in that, he was Lord of the Sabbath. Well, I wanted to pick this one. And there's 80 of them. I can, we can pick any of those and you'll see the same kind of stuff through there. Just great, wonderful stuff. He was the Lord of the Sabbath, Matthew 12.8. It says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, right? In what context? To be able to heal on the, on the Sabbath, on Saturday. He's the Lord of the Sabbath in that he wrote it. He gave it to Moses. Here you go. So he therefore has the authority to interpret it correctly, that they were not. That's the idea there. And so who can interpret God's word uh, with authority? Only God. 
Um, not, not the same thing as our interpretation, and that's not what I'm getting at. Okay. Uh, secondly, the Son of Man. So the first one is the Son of Man in deity has come out of heaven to our earth to accomplish his task. The second one is the accomplishing of the task. The Son of Man has a present ministry to complete. That's the second one, right? We see that all the way through in the, uh, the use of this title also. Uh, he must suffer and die. He says this a lot about himself in verse 12, uh, 12 of chapter 17 in Matthew. Um, and you read this a few times in different versions. It says, but I say this to you that Elijah already came and, did not re- and they did not recognize him, speaking of John the Baptist, but did to him whatever they wished, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. So this Messiah, the Son of Man, has come to suffer. It's part of the ministry that he's been called to. And, uh, and as you go through these 80 verses, you, you really define, stretch out your understanding of that Messiahship, right? Um, another one, the Son of Man will die and, and rise again. Mark 8.31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man would suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So there's a power to this individual, the Son of Man. Um, a couple more. The, the third one then. So the first one is past. second one is present. And the few, third part of this Messiah definition or title, Son of Man, is future events. And that is uh, with respect to his glory, his, his radiance, his magnificence in, in eternity future, right? First called out in Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Daniel's uh, looking and he says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, like, one in, like a son of man was coming. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented there before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As we look to the future, the Son of Man will reign in all power. This is all power. He's He's equal with the Ancient of Days in this context. That's what he's being given. He's not being given a celestial kingdom with he and his wife and a bunch of kids. That's not it. It's everything and uh, nothing less. That's the idea of we look forward to what the Son of Man will be and accomplish. Matthew 16:27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. The glory of his Father is that which he is given and, uh, and he will bring judgment. And one more, Matthew 24:30. And then the sign of, of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds and on the sky with power and great glory. And this magnificence of who he has defined himself to be is what he challenges this young man who has been formerly blind, but now he can see to believe or not believe. And that's the incredibleness of this passage. To believe then in the Son of Man, is, is a, it really is three things. It's to accept his past, his present, and his future tasks yet to come. That's, when, I, when I trust in Jesus, I trust in the whole of, of him, of who he is, right? Not just a part of what I think he ought to be or should be. And you think, that's a ridiculous statement. Of course you've got to trust in all of Jesus. That's not the world we live in. That is not the religion that's taught out there. It is, you make of Jesus what you want and believe in that, and that's good enough. 
That's the type of religion people want. Um, John uh, 9, 35 to 38, is, this is what the man did. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and, he, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Right? His answer, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Right? Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. To believe then in the Son of God, the Son of Man, um, is to have a belief that one came from the Father. If I accept Jesus and I believe in him, then I believe that he, as he said, came from the Father. So there's a past to it. There is that past portion uh, involved in my belief. Absolutely. And that was really the problem with uh, talking to many of these uh, Pharisees, that they, they didn't believe that he had come from the Father. They believed, uh, in fact, that's what they were trying to, to uh, ferret out. Where did he come from? And, and they asked the uh, man formerly blind, tell us the truth. Um, and uh, that was uh, part of their, part of their uh, implied deception. So a belief in that he came from the Father. Two, a belief that he paid for my sins. He paid for my sins. When he dies on the cross, he died for my sins. Now, for the blind man, that was yet future. And for us, it's past. But for both of us, it's total. Right? He, he died for your sins. Not just a few, but all the horror, the corruption, the immorality, the ungodliness. Christ died for all of it. He totally forgives you. He wants you to walk with him. And when he paid for it, um, that obviously meant he died and spread his blood over to cover you in all ways. He paid for all of your sins. And the third thing to, in this context of believing in Christ, believing in the Son of Man, it is to, to have a belief that he will one day reign in glory. And as he reigns in that glory, that means he will deliver the promises that he has given to you. That of total forgiveness, of reigning with him in heaven, of rewards and blessings. So, again, to believe in Christ, is, uh, to accept him on his terms, means that I accept that one day, uh, when he is revealed, I will be revealed with him in glory, Colossians chapter 3, um, and that, that those events are yet future, right? Past, present, and future. That's what a belief in the Son of Man is. And so this blind man believed from where he came worshipped him right there on the spot he's worshipping the son of man it's an act of divinity so he, you can take from that all parts of these three um, and then he uh, trusts his future, imparts it to the son of man and in that way his faith in Christ is both past, is, is also past, present and future and so um, that's what we should contemplate when we think about trusting in Christ. It is not a momentary decision that was once and long ago and never will come up again. It always remains with us. We are always believers. We are never not and that's what we are to be. Okay, so then moving on. Um, a couple of things with that. Remember it's the, uh, the Pharisees who were attempting to downplay this and put it apart. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth from and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. That's where I came from, from glory, from the Father. But that's what they rejected. John 9, 29. We know God has spoken to Moses, 
But as for this man, we do not know where he is from. That's the Pharisees' own testimony about what they believed with regard to where Christ had come and who he was. And so if you then do not accept Christ on his terms, then you you are counted among the Pharisees who make up your own terms of what you believe and don't believe. And that is totally worthless in terms of God's standard. And the last point, uh, we look at this passage and we read that Jesus grants some to see while others to remain blind. And that's, this is probably the most difficult part of this passage here because, you see, um, what he's saying is that um, he has come to judge. But we contrast that with what he previously said, that others, uh, that he did not come to judge. And we, we get this kind of strange, um, two, two, not two-faced, but two Uh, pointed document or testimony from Jesus. And so let me look at that. Uh, And first off, in uh, 38 to 41, it says, And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For the judgment I came into this world, so so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, then you would not have sinned. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Okay? Now, what I'm not saying here is this some Armenian idea that somehow we can choose God or not choose God. That that is not the case. However, as we read it, we certainly looks like some choose and some don't. And that's not my point here. Um, Compare, however, what Jesus said in the beginning there. Um, I... If he says, starting in verse 40, those of the Pharisees who were, uh, let me see, back up, verse 39, for judgment I came into the world, right? For judgment I came into the world. But read John 3:17. Jesus said, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. If Jesus did not come to judge, then how is it in, that in John 9, uh, 38, he says, um, I've come to judge? You know, what, what is going on here? And we need to discern uh, you know what is happening. One is obviously that he has not come to set up the line of judgment where some go off into hell and some don't. That is not what's being said here. But he is the fork in the road in terms of judgment, as a as one individual, uh, and from the individual's point of view. I'm not talking about Armenian theology here, but as one individual chooses to receive Christ and one individual chooses not to, it, Jesus did come in to make it clear in terms of judgment as being that fork in the road that you have not chosen. Be honest with yourself. Look at yourself. Um, Be real with respect to what you have done or haven't done. I believe that's uh, a clear picture of what he's doing here. He's not judging an individual, but he is making it clear to that individual of what they are choosing, what they have chosen. And that's what he does to these men that he calls blind, even though they see. Um, you know, so nothing more than that. And that goes back to my title there. Jesus grants some to see while others choose to remain blind. The point there is uh, not with respect to eternity, but in this world, some do see and others who say they see are really blind. That's really what's going on. Um, so Jesus' judgment in this world reveals their belief or something, uh, or something spiritual akin to blindness. Okay? Okay. Uh, the humble will be saved. We got that much. So, however you look at it, understand this much. The humble are saved. John 9, 41. 
this man was, uh, he was blind. He was, his sight was restored. He was questioned. He was questioned. He was questioned. He came to Jesus. He was questioned again by Jesus. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he said, yes, I believe. And he humbled himself and he got on the ground and he worshipped. That's humility that will be honored by God. We can't deny that. Uh, see, those who reject Christ's salvation remain lost. Right? So we, we see that in verse 41. It says, now Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you wouldn't have no sin. But since you say we, are, we see, your sin remains. Push all that aside to say what it means is the proud, the arrogant will not receive salvation from God. They'll remain blind just as they are. And that's it's not a judgment. It's a reality. Um, it's not a judgment in that it's condemnation in the, in the eternity. It's a reality about where they're at. So I, you can call it a judgment uh, in that ca- context, but that's what it is. And so um, uh, we look at that and we say, well, you know, I've had a lot of friends who uh, would have nothing to do with Christ. I've listened to a lot of movie stars and people, popular people and who've written books say, well, you know, I don't wear my religion on my sleeve or... Um, I'm not a holy roller, or they say, you know, I, you know, I, I got spiritual uh, feelings, but I don't go that route. No, the reality is that Christ asks us to be humble and to admit our sins and to submit to whatever He asks of us, and, and wherever that goes and whatever that requires, you know, we are to do. Now, someone who says, well, um, you know, I'm kind, I'm not so much of a holy roller, I'm not you know, into that kind of thing, but I've got some spiritual leadings. I ask, are you committed to Christ or are you not? Because in this passage, that's what is being laid out. This man was committed to Christ. Humi- humbly, he laid his life down before Jesus, and we see the result of it is that the men's sins are forgiven, but the Pharisees are not. So the issue is, the issue is salvation through the forgiveness of sins. And people today who don't go that route, are people who can rest assured that they remained spiritually blind. And that's uh, unfortunate. So, this passage then deals with uh, the issues, not only of who the Son of Man is, but of what salvation is. And it it is clear that it requires humility. And it is clear also that God will grant it. He will hear us and He will save us. But it also is clear that for those who remain arrogant, prideful, unwilling to submit and confess their sins before God, that uh, nothing will come of that but the continued spiritual blindness that, uh, when they think that they see all things. Well, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, writing now about how an individual uh, can experience life and enjoy it deeply and fully and do your own thing and um, um, all the glories that go with it. Americans do their own thing. On the weekends, it's blitzing out to the desert. I know this for a fact. Because I drive up to 57 and the amount of people going camping into Las Vegas with their last bit of social security check and all that other stuff, is, it's immense. It is really a lot of people. Um, and so it takes an extra half an hour to get home. Um, that's the American way. That's what we are. We're to ex- live life on the weekends. But that's not the Christian life. And finding the meaning in Christian life goes well beyond that. And so would you stand with me? The blind can see, and um, those that think they can see and who are proud cannot. That's what uh, this passage is about. So as uh, our worship team leads us in song, let's uh, close in this hymn.